I'm not a singer, but chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your nose, Yuletide carols being sung by a choir, and folks dressed up like Eskimos. That's from 1964. Nat King Cole made that song famous, the Christmas song. Um, but the song wasn't actually written by him. That honor goes to Mel Torme. In 1945, there was a brutal summer in the United States, and it was so hot. In the middle of summer, Mel sat down at a piano, and his hope was that he could psychologically cool himself off by thinking about ideas about winter and Christmas. And so he wrote these four lines down, trying to think about cold weather and trying to cool himself off. And within 45 minutes, this famous Christmas song was written out in the dead of summer, in the middle of the heat. And in, in the next year, uh, Nat King Cole sang it and became famous. And now you probably hear it on the radio, you hear it on your Spotify Christmas playlist over and over again. We're in the middle of a series called Christmas Songs, but we're not talking about those kinds of Christmas songs. We're talking about the songs that come up in the birth narrative of Jesus. There's a curious number of songs that the gospel writers record in the birth story of Jesus. And we're calling this our Advent series, um, where sometimes in churches we're all about the birth of Jesus. Advent misses, uh, sometimes we miss some of the historic celebration of Advent. And the difference is Advent is about participation with and anticipation of the coming king. Advent is where we celebrate the revelation of God in Christ, through whom all of creation will be reconciled to God. The first advent of Christ inaugurates that reconciliation, a process in which we now participate. And the second advent singles its consummation, something we anticipate. We're anticipating him returning. We celebrate that he came, and we anticipate him coming. And in between, that's where we are right now, we participate with him, bringing good news to people in darkness. Now, last week we looked at Mary's song, um, and Mary's song was really about hope. It's a very hopeful song. She's really excited. This angel comes to her, and she's like, yes, I will do it. Whatever you say, Lord. And today we're looking at the song of Zechariah. He's in a little bit of a different spot. If Mary's song was about hope, Zechariah's song is about doubt. And naturally, I gravitate to the doubters. You know, like, if I had to pick a favorite apostle, I'm like Thomas. You know, he's the one probably I uh, identify with the most. I've never been fully 100% convinced of anything. You know, there's still that 1% chance that I'm in the matrix right now. You know, like I'm not 100% convinced this is real. Maybe it's my nature or my experiences or my education or all three working together. But belief is not something that comes easily for me. It's not something that comes naturally. I don't wake up and I'm just, I believe there's a God. You know, like I have to really work at it. Thankfully, faith doesn't mean you can't have doubts. And I'm grateful for that. Um, and the Bible and the Christmas story are full of things that our logical minds want to doubt. A virgin birth? When was the last time that happened? Well, in Bethlehem, you know, but it's like hard to believe that, right? There's some things that are hard to believe. I remember when Anakin in Star Wars, in episode one, was said to be born of the Force. And my friends who saw the movie with me, they were like, nah. That doesn't happen. Emperor Palpatine's probably his dad. He just doesn't know, right? I mean, it's funny that many of us have a hard time with the miraculous, even in stories about laser swords and magic. Like, it's hard to believe in a virgin birth, even in Star Wars. But doubt doesn't mean the absence of faith. Faith is acting with confidence on something, even if you have doubts. 
Lord Alfred Tennyson, the poet, said, there's more faith in honest doubt than in half the creeds. So many people believe things without thinking about it. They're like, I'm just saying this thing. This is what we believe. This is what we do. But if you start to question their beliefs, they completely crumble. We see that a lot right now in our culture, especially in my generation. A lot of people have had these beliefs handed to them, and they just recited them. But once people started asking questions about them, um, all of a sudden they start to crumble. We need people who have considered the evidence and made a rational decision based on the facts. People who aren't 100% certain, but who are convinced enough to live life this way. People who hold their faith with honest doubt. And just to be honest with you, I come to the Advent season this year with a little bit of melancholy, a little bit of cynicism. Um, you know, cynicism is a symptom of grief. When you're cynical, it's because you've been hurt, you've lost something. Advent is filled with birth stories, stories that leave me feeling empty because Darby and I long to have a child of our own and have tried to have a child for so long, and it feels like the whole universe has conspired against us. Zachariah's song of doubt reminds me of my own doubts during this season of Advent. And I think this is one of the reasons that Advent is so important. We need reminders to hope in the dark. Because if you're not in a dark point in your life, there will be dark points in your life. Pastor Sharon Miller from Bright City Church says, at Advent, God invites us to consider whether the darkness that feels so much like a tomb right now might actually be a womb. Out of the darkness in your life, he might be bringing something new into the world. So maybe like me, this season you're feeling like you're in the dark. Maybe like Israel in Zechariah's story, you're waiting with all creation, waiting and watching and wondering if God's ever going to move, he's ever going to send his promised Messiah. Maybe like Zechariah, you're filled with doubt. This morning we're going to look at his song together and see if we can find some hope in the midst of our doubting. In the midst of our doubting. We're in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and sang, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people and he has redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. So, what's going on with Zechariah here that he's singing this song that's included in our uh, Christmas narratives and scripture? First, a little background. Zechariah is a Levite. That's the tribe that's designated to work in the temple. In the first century, there's a lot of them, and so they take turns. They work in shifts in the temple, and so Zechariah went in to burn incest and incense in the temple, and while he's in there, this angel appears to him and says, hey, you prayed for a long time to have a child. Guess what? God's giving you 
a son, and his name needs to be John. Uh, the angel goes on in verse 14. He says, He will be a joy and delight to you. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to drink wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of, uh, of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, the angel says all this, and Zachariah's response is not like Mary's response. Remember Mary's response last week? She was like, let it so be, Lord. Whatever you say, I'm your servant. Let's do it. Yes, I'm on board. Zachariah was old, though. Mary was young, probably a teenager. Zachariah was old, it says. He had seen some stuff. He had, been, he had hoped before and been disappointed before and hoped and hoped and been disappointed and disappointed time and time again. Experience can be a great ally, but experience can also poison your hope because you've lost some things. You've seen some things. You've been disappointed. And Zechariah says to the angel, I'm old. I, I'm not sure I buy this. Like, I need some kind of sign to convince me that this is going to happen. I want assurances. We've been hopeful before and, we're, and been disappointed. We're old. This is unlikely. You need to convince me. And the angel says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You won't be able to talk until the baby is born. So, for eight months, John, uh, Zachariah can't speak, and then the baby's finally born. People ask Zachariah what the name is going to be, and he, he asks for a writing tablet because he can't talk, and he writes down the name John, and then instantly he can speak. Think about that. For eight months, you haven't been able to say anything. What are you going to say after eight months of silence? You know, I, I don't know. I'd be like, who knows what I'd say. I'd probably have all kinds of things pent up. But you know what he does? He doesn't just speak. He sings that passage we just read is what he sings after eight months of silence he bursts into this song in liturgical and orthodox church traditions this song is known as the benedictus um, that's latin for blessing in the sixth century benedict of nursia introduced it as an early morning worship song and so in monasteries, there would be a, a period of silence in the evenings and in the night. You weren't supposed to speak. It was supposed to be quiet so that you could pray and reflect on scripture and meditate and um, encounter God. But they would break that silence each morning by reading verse 76 through 79 of this passage we just read. This is how you would wake up in the monastic tradition if you were living in a monastery after being quiet for roughly 12 hours, you would wake up and the first thing you would say is verses 76 to 79, and you will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. You will give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path peace and that's how they would start their morning it was a daily practice to set the tone for the day like Zechariah breaking his silence with this song they would break their nightly silence with praise what a great ancient practice to rediscover today like before we reach for our phones before we read the headlines before we make the lunches to pause for a minute and to recite a song that remembers our place in the story this place would between celebration of him coming, anticipation of him returning, and participation with him in the present. 
Israel had waited 400 years without a prophetic word, and now that silence is broken with the Song of Mary and the Song of Zechariah. And just like how Zechariah's silence was broken, the silence between God and his people is now broken. He has spoken, he is coming, and before him marches his herald to announce him. And we have that same honor and that same mission to announce the king who has come and is coming still. When the world is cold and dark and seems hopelessly broken, we announce the coming of the king who will make all things right. So this morning I want to look at just a couple of lines from Zachariah's song that I think can be encouraging to us as we live with eager anticipation in our modern world, as we long to live with hope as a counter to our natural cynicism and doubt. In verse 69, he talks about the horn of salvation. If you go back to verse 69, it says, He raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Hannah's song that we talked about last week that parallels Mary's song mentions a horn as well. Now, horns were a Jewish symbolic way of referencing kingly power. If you read in the book of Revelation, there's a lamb with seven horns, which if you're like, man, that'd be scary as all get can you imagine walking down the street and seeing a, a lamb with seven horns i'd be like i'm getting out of here this is this is creepy is this halloween you know um but john is not trying to be like creepy in the book of revelation it's a symbol of having complete and total power seven's a sign of completeness or total power and a horn's a symbol of kingly power and so he's saying like this lamb this ruler is going to have complete and total power but the powerful horn from the line of David hasn't been raised up to rule or to destroy. What does Zechariah say? He's been raised up to save. Jesus uses his kingly power to protect the weak, to rescue the hurting. When we're hurting alone and afraid, it's hard to believe in a God that is with us and for us. You ever wonder this where you're like, God, if you use your power to help the hurting and the lonely, like, where are you right now? Like, have you been in those moments where you're like, where are you? If you, this is how you use your power, why am I in this situation? Lots of people in the story of the Bible ask that exact same question. Um, some of them got to see him come. Others waited and waited, and the generations after them waited and waited. I've become so familiar with getting what I want. Thanks, Amazon Prime. You know, sometimes they deliver it the same day. There's sometimes where they get it to me within a few hours. I'm really getting spoiled now. If it doesn't have same-day delivery, I'm like, mm, that's too long to wait. You know, like, uh, we have gotten so familiar with getting what we want when we want it in our country that sometimes we have forgotten America is not the kingdom of heaven. We're not in heaven right now. This isn't everything that life is supposed to be right now. You can't have the kingdom without the king. And sometimes I want the king's presence, but not the king's presence. Listen to this ancient church catechism about Advent. This is what an ancient church catechism says. When the church celebrates Advent each year, she makes present this ancient expectancy of the Messiah. For by sharing in the long preparation for the Savior's first coming, the faithful renew their ardent desire for his second coming. Christmas is not just about celebrating the fact that he came as a baby. That's great. We're expecting his imminent return. Do you have an ardent, that's a deep-felt uh, desire for his second coming? You have an all-consuming desire to see the return of King Jesus. Uh, too often, there are things I want, good things, things that aren't bad, they're not destructive, they're not sinful, but things that I want much more than I want the return of our King. 
I remember uh, when I was in Tennessee and I was working with college students, uh, there was this one college guy and he's like, I hope Jesus doesn't return before I get married. I really want to be married. And I'm like, being married has no comparison to the return of King Jesus to reconcile heaven and earth, you know? But sometimes we think like that. Now, that's not to make us feel bad or guilty, but in ages past, as Christians celebrated Advent, they looked forward to the return of Jesus because in his coming, they saw the hope of everything they longed for. Now, so often, I long for things from Jesus, but I don't long for Jesus and see in his coming everything that I long for. The deeper we hurt in this broken world, the louder our cry should be saying, come, King Jesus, come quickly, set things right, be the horn of our salvation. In verse 72, Zechariah says, you have shown mercy to our ancestors, you have remembered your holy covenant. And this is important because we need to talk about names for a minute. Names are very important in the Bible, especially in the first century. What they called you, they thought was a sign of your destiny, what you were going to do with your life. Um, and it was custom to name your firstborn son after you. But Zechariah was told to name his son John. Zechariah means God didn't forget you. What a good name. How fitting for his story. When God is silent, it's so easy to put words in his mouth and be like, God forgot me. God hates me. God doesn't, you know, God's not coming through for me. He likes that person over there. Look at their Instagram feed. Clearly, God likes them better than I do. I mean, just look how perfect their life is. All their children are well-behaved. Everything is perfect in their home. They have no problems. Obviously, God likes them better. When, it is si when God is silent, it's so easy to guess at what he's saying and guess wrong. I'm convinced that a lot of time in our life, the devil is not actively involved because he doesn't need to be. We're self-destructive ourselves. We self-sabotage ourselves. We're pretty good about getting ourselves into trouble all on our own. John Acuff in his book, Soundtracks, argues that most of us have some negative thoughts filled with doubts and lies. And when something in life disappoints us or doesn't go our way, we put that record on and we just play it in our head over and over again. God doesn't love me. I'm not liked. I'm not good enough. Whatever it is, over and over. I'm a failure. I'll never live up to this. And we play that track over and over and over again in our minds. John A. Cuff again says, one of the greatest mistakes you can make in life is assuming that all your thoughts are true. Advent is about expelling the lie that says, God doesn't remember me. Zechariah is like, look, God remembers. God remembers. He doesn't forget you. He doesn't wait without reason or purpose. We have to replace the broken soundtracks in our head with true ones, songs of hope. Now, that doesn't mean that we have a blind optimism, like everything's going to turn out great. We'll never be in pain or discomfort. Everything's going to be fine. It means we remember how Jesus came. We confidently look for his return, and we know because of his character and nature that we can expect good. Despite all the hardship and brokenness in our world, there will be good because we have a good father. Zachariah's song reminds us that God doesn't just remember the faithful, he remembers the doubtful too. Now, last in verse 76, I want to just look at, he begins to talk to his baby son John here, and he says, You, my child, will be a prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare a way for him. In ancient days, heralds went before kings to announce their arrival. I did a little bit of research on heralds. They still have heralds in, you guessed it, England. 
where we still have royalty, right? And there's a few other countries around Europe that still have heralds that go before kings and announce their arrival or still record the line of kings. John the Baptist was to be a herald for Jesus's first coming, and we are the herald for his second coming. The church, the followers of Jesus, his disciples, to the people walking in darkness, we announce that we have seen a great light. Because of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, there's a new way of being human, an abundant life. The kingdom of darkness is being chased away like the shadows that are dispersed before a bright light. Our mission is not to endure until the king returns. I know sometimes there's Christians in my, uh, my family or my friend circle who are like, I'm just trying to make it, you know, like I'm going to hunker down and bunker down until Jesus comes back, build up high walls. That's not our mission. Our mission is to be about the king's work, his work to reconcile people with his father. We are to invite people to become students of how Jesus lived in love. We are to become agents of love and people of peace in a dark world. We are to speak about our king and how people can become like him too. And this is why we daily need to be reminded of the Benedictus from Zechariah's song. We will be called prophets of the Most High. For you and I go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. To give people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. And God, we expectantly look for your return when you will end sickness and death, racism and war, disease. You will heal and make all things right. Your rule and reign will be so good to work backwards to unravel the worst of humanity's mistakes. But God, in the in-between, we're going to participate with you in your work to spread light in a dark world and to introduce people to your ways and your life and to you. God, help us to be filled with your spirit, to listen for where you guide us to share a thought, where you guide us to pray with someone, where you, where you guide us to answer people's curious questions when they're spiritually curious. Position us to be lights in dark places. Let us not be overwhelmed by the darkness, but let us shine brightly so that we might participate with you in your desire to reconcile heaven and earth. I pray all these things like I believe Jesus Christ would.